The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts 13, uh, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who would do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who would come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. <clears throat> Would you join me in prayer? Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that your word is trustworthy and true and pure and consistent, just like you. But we know that it is through your word that we can come to know you and to draw close to you. We know that it is through your word that we and come to know what you have done on our behalf as you sent Jesus so that through him we might know you. So, Father, as we study your word today, God, I pray that you would lift high and magnify the name of Jesus among us. Help us to get our hands wrapped around our greatest weapon, the message of the gospel. Pray that you would do this and then some. Trust you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, and amen. You guys, uh, as we dive in, and before we really dive into the text in front of us, I want to uh, just kind of remind us of where we've been, the book of Acts. I want to remind us of the grand movement that's kind of been taking place throughout this book as we've studied it. Uh, from the beginning of the book of Acts until now, what it seems like God has been doing is he's been meticulously advancing the message of the gospel. Right? He's been advancing the message of the gospel from Jerusalem outward. The message of the gospel is the good news. The perfect life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was crucified in our place as the payment and the ransom for our sins. 
was resurrected on the third day, complete victory over our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He ascended into heaven, right? He now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Left us with a promise that he would return one day. The old Apostles' Creed says to judge the quick and the dead. Reminds me of a really cool Western movie. Named the quick and the dead. Um, He will come back and rescue God's children once and for all. He also promised to give us his spirit so that we might live, so that we might be his witnesses here on this earth. And this is the message that God has been advancing um, as I picked up on a theme a few weeks back, um, long before the events of last Saturday. Um, if, if you go back and you look at some of the sermons that I've been picking up on this, this theme, kind of a, a militant theme in the background, that God is actually advancing the message of the gospel deep into enemy territory. And he's been doing that all throughout the book of Acts right outside of Jerusalem, right? And so I would say that in the midst of this military-like movement, what God has done is he has literally pulled out all the stops, right? Remember some of the highlights so far just in the first 13 chapters, right? He transformed Peter into a Gentile-loving Jew. That is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, he, He radically saved a bloodthirsty terrorist named Saul turned him into a newly commissioned worldwide evangelist named Paul. That's nothing short of miraculous as well. There is literally, in the midst of all this, as you look at it, underneath this and in the theme of all of it, there's literally no one that is beyond the reach of God. There's literally no one who is beyond the reach of God's mission to seek and to save the lost. And you also learn, it's not just that. It's not just that no one is beyond the reach. We also learn that God is all about using anyone whom he chooses to accomplish this grand scheme of world transformation. It's interesting, as I was writing this sermon, I wrote world domination because I think that way. In some sense it is, but it's not really world domination, it's world transformation. And he's doing that through the message of the gospel, he's doing. Really shouldn't surprise us, I don't think, uh, at all, as you study it, shouldn't surprise us to see God sending his people, his troops, you might say, out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Right? That's exactly what Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says. In Acts 1, 8, most scholars say Acts as the blueprint for studying the book of Acts. That's exactly what you see taking place. It should not surprise us that we see this taking place. Shouldn't surprise us either to see opposition and warfare around every corner in this story. Yet at the same time, Shouldn't surprise us to see that just when everything seems to be falling apart, right? Just when it seems like the enemy is going to win, like the whole story is going to come crashing down into pieces. And you think of some of the stories, right? End of the Gospels, beginning of the book of Acts, 
Jesus is brutally murdered and buried. That seems like the end, doesn't it? That seems like a sad movie. It's, it's the unexpected. Or you got the story of Saul, right? Unleashing terror upon God's people. That feels like the end. It feels like, well, it's all just going to end poorly and badly. Or you got uh, a while back, we studied uh, the story of King Herod, right? Herod was, he murdered James, like murdered him with a sword. Not a good way to die. No way is probably a good way to die, but that's definitely not a good way to die. Murders him with a sword. Guy's a bloodthirsty lunatic. And then he arrests Peter. And we're pretty certain as we read that story that Peter's going to face the same demise as James. Just that it's the Sabbath day, so Herod's got to wait till the next day. Wait till the next day. Just when it seems like everything is about to come undone, it also shouldn't surprise us to see that God is always a few steps, or even I would say probably a few miles ahead of the enemy. And he does some radical things, right? <clears throat> he either completely wipes his enemies off the face of the earth. That was the case of King Herod, gets eaten by worms and explodes. Like that's, that was brutal. Make a movie about that. If Christians made a movie about that, we would dumb it down. Okay. Or he radically saves his enemies, right? Turns them into allies. That's the case of Saul who later became known as Paul. That's a crazy whack story too. Or leaves the tomb empty on the third day, right? That's the case of Jesus. I mean, you read these stories, and doesn't that have to just build your faith like crazy? Doesn't that make you think, like, feel like you could just run through walls and be okay? No, probably not run through walls. But it should, like, convince us that when God calls us and enlists us in this mission to move the gospel forward, that there's no opposition that can stand against you and I because we are filled with the very spirit, the very breath of God. That should just help us get up out of our seats, look at those signs by the doors as we enter the proverbial mission field outside these doors and run, right? With all this in mind, I argued in my last sermon um, that Christians need to learn to live with a wartime mentality instead of a cruise ship mentality. You need to learn to live with a wartime mentality instead of a cruise ship mentality. We were never meant to be consumers. That's the reality when you read the scriptures. What I'm about to say is going to be really, really harsh. But I think it's needed for us in this day and age in this culture. We were never meant to be consumers who suck the life and the resources out of the church in our quest for comfortable social clubs. The church was never, ever meant to be a social club. We were meant to be contributors, people who jump on a battleship and are heading into war on the daily. Jesus did not come to be served. He did not come to set up social clubs. He did not come to be served like royalty. He came to serve like an enlisted man who would later give his life for the sake of true spiritual freedom. And then he would say, you follow me. And if you truly follow me, pick up the same cross I carry and let's go. 
That's the message. It's not a popular message in the Western church. I think that there are many in the Western church who have absolutely rejected the gospel, traded it in for weapons that have no spiritual power whatsoever. Let's list them. Politics, education, fame, fortune, and let's get the center, in the center of the cultural war. That's what we've done. The reality, I think, is that we should wake up every morning knowing that we live in the midst of a danger zone, right? Preached that a couple of weeks ago as well. <clears throat> our general, and this Spurgeon loved to call Jesus our general or our captain. Charles Spurgeon had this view of the Bible and this whole kingdom of God aspect like it was that, a mission to be on on the daily. He would say that our general Jesus literally is sending us into the mission field as missionary soldiers. That would be his language. You put those two words together, missionary soldiers called to advance the gospel into enemy-occupied territory. And this world we live in, I say this almost every week, this world we live in is a spiritual war zone. That, that is Christianity number one. When you start following Jesus, you begin to realize that this world we live in, we are aliens here. We're passing through. This territory is not ours. Our territory is heaven. That's our promised land. But we like to set up our lives like this is all there is to it. We accumulate, we accumulate, we accumulate. And there's something inside of us, I think, that when we think about advancing the kingdom of God here on earth, that somehow we're going to advance the kingdom of God and everything's going to get better. Read the Bible. It doesn't go that way. You advance the kingdom of God so that more lost will be found to become part of that family. And everything's going to end poorly, or so to speak. Jesus is going to come back on a white horse with a tattoo, bloody garments, annihilate his enemies. It's going to be a great day. Choke slam Satan into hell. Love it. Hope I'm there. Pretty sure I will be. Hope you will be too. Right? The world we live in is a spiritual war zone. The problem is that we're human, right? We're tangible. We like to pick things up. I like to pick up hammers and fix things or break things. It's true. Yes. We're tangible. And the reality is it's really hard to wrap your hands and your mind around the idea of being physical beings living in a spiritual war zone. Our greatest weapon our greatest weapon is not the weapons that the world around us wields. Like I said, politics, education, wealth, fame, social influence. None of that's bad. Don't hear me wrong. Don't misconstrue what I'm saying. None of that's bad. What makes it bad is when it becomes your primary weapon. You know how many Christians can't even articulate the gospel? Let me just ask you right now. Think inside your mind. Can you articulate the gospel in such a way that you could lead somebody to Jesus? If you say yes in your mind, the very next question should be this. Then who have you led to Jesus? The next question should be, when was the last time you led somebody to Jesus? Harsh realities of what it means to be a Christian these days. I think sometimes the other problem is that we get so in love with our sin that we don't think that we can do any good in sharing the gospel. But isn't that shame and guilt? And isn't that a tactic of Satan? The reality is that in the gospel, your sins have been cast as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the rest, right? 
That doesn't mean you stop sharing the gospel. You continue sharing the gospel and you continue to grow up. So I think we should wake up every morning this way. Our greatest weapon is the message of the gospel. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think you'll get it there too. There's so many places I could take us to that I think you would get this. And this really is the weapon that the Apostle Paul carries with him on his first missionary trip as he advances into enemy-occupied territory in the text that we're studying today. And the first thing we see is what it actually looks like to advance into enemy territory. So look at verses 13 and 15 with me. In these verses, we see the Apostle Paul and his band of brothers. Great movie, by the way. Band of brothers. Never seen it. You should watch it. I think it's great. You see Paul and his band of brothers. They are, they are pressing forward. They're continuing forward with the mission that they had been called to. You remember, in Antioch, Holy Spirit said, hey, set apart these guys for me. Send them. They go. And as they go, what happens? John Mark deserts them. There's always going to be deserters when you head out on a mission. Always. And you just deal with it. All there is to it. John Mark deserts the mission. He deserts his brothers. He heads home with his tail between his legs. That's the first picture we get of John Mark in the text. Now, the reality is later on, later on, John Mark must come around, and they do reconcile towards the end of uh, Paul's life, it, it appears. But at this point, he takes off as a deserter. And the first place that the Apostle Paul takes his crew, battle-ready missionaries, is right into the deepest parts of enemy-occupied territory in the Jewish synagogue. Now, please do not hear me wrong. There is absolutely no anti-Semitism in what I'm about to say. I don't want you to misunderstand me. The Jews are not Paul's enemies. Okay, So don't, don't hear that. But I would say that at this point, the Jews are under a spiritual control that is the enemy. Agreed? Because Ephesians 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual forces of evil in this dark world we live in. So don't misunderstand that. When I say that Paul takes his crew deep into enemy territory as he walks into that synagogue. All throughout the book of Acts and really all throughout history, you would find... The Jews will continuously prove over and over again that they are enemies of Jesus. That may sound harsh, but they are enemies of Jesus, at least in this context. And, and therefore, they become enemies of God. And that's the story in God's relationship between God the Father and his chosen nation, Israel. It's like this continuous rebellious child, right? God loves them but continues to chastise them for their rebellion and their hatred towards him. This is the place where the Spirit of God moves the Apostle Paul to advance into, the local synagogue full of Jewish worshipers. Now, I want you to catch this too. At this point in history, at this point in history, there's no one who was more hostile to the gospel than the Jews. You might think maybe it was the Roman occupation. No, I don't think so. Uh, the Roman occupation at this point didn't even see early Christianity as a threat at this point in history. They actually viewed Christians as a subset of the Jewish faith. And on top of that, most Roman leaders 
We're attempting to establish a kind of society much like what we live in today. Check it. Very similar. Their idea was that they would create a society where everyone was free to worship whomever they wanted to worship so long as they obeyed the laws of the land, of the government. And that kind of society, that kind of value, eventually led to Rome's demise, right? Why? Because it created a pluralistic society, not a theistic society. Israel was meant to be a theistic society. They're meant to be governed by God. And they still screwed it up all the time, right? Why? Because we're human and we live in a sin-soaked world. The problem in Roman society is that it created a pluralistic society that had no backbone, but also had massive competing values. They eventually eroded from the inside out. They weren't necessarily the enemy of Christianity at this point. They would be in the years to come. So the greatest opposition to Christianity in the early days of the church was not necessarily Rome. It was the Jewish faithful. It is what it is. Paul knew this. But Paul also knew something from experience. And this will ring true with you. Paul knew that God loves his enemies. How did Paul know that? Because Jesus knocked him off his high horse in the middle of the desert and radically saved him. Paul knew that. Therefore, he had the kahunas, you could say, to walk right into that enemy-occupied territory to share the gospel. That, that blows me away. I want to do the same thing, don't you? Don't you want to go like into some of the most dangerous of places and share the gospel so that you could see what Jesus would do? Or would you like to live in comfort? Which would you like? I don't want to live in comfort. I want to go to some of the most scariest, dangerous places and share the gospel. I want to shake in my boots because I'm so scared of what could happen while I'm there. And then watch God rise up and do some massively miraculous things. That's why I have that tattoo on my arm that says running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. I don't desire comfort. And maybe I'm weird. <laughs> Everybody goes, yes, you are. All right, it's all right. It's okay. Paul knew that God loves his enemies. Paul knew that God especially loves his chosen nation, Israel, right? And so that is exactly where Paul goes first. Upon their arrival in the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue stand up, and it's kind of a customary fashion. They offer their guests an opportunity to encourage the congregation. They basically say, hey, you got anything to encourage us with? Go ahead and speak. You have the floor. Paul seizes the opportunity to unleash the greatest weapon on the face of the planet. And he does it as he preaches the message of the gospel, right? And the first thing he does is he tells them what God has done throughout human history. That's the first part of Paul's message. You look at verses 16 through 22, and it completely focuses on what God has done throughout human history. The gospel, listen, the gospel is not a complete message. It's not a fully loaded weapon if it does not include God's historical interactions in human history. The idea of the simple gospel message is something that lends itself very close to heresy. Very close. Catch that I didn't say it is heresy, but it lends itself very close. Because when we get used to just preaching like 
the Romans road of salvation or the, the quick three points of the simple gospel message, we try to boil it down to something really palatable that makes it easy for somebody to go, oh, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Please and work, sign me up. And it doesn't fully explain the gospel in such a way that makes people think about the decision you're calling them to. But we are Westerners. We like things boiled down, really simple. We like the quick fix. And we like to get through McDonald's quick too, which doesn't always happen. By the way, is anybody happy the Burger King shut down? I don't know why I just went there, but now you know. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with the sermon, but Paul's opening summary of what God has done throughout human history, here's what he does. You might notice that in these verses, 16 through 22, the entire focus is on what God has done. All of it, right? God chose Israel. God made the nation great. God led them out of slavery to Egypt. God put up with them for 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness. Those of you that have kids, you know what this is like. Up with you. <clears throat> or if you're kids and you have parents, you know what it's like too. Because you put up with your parents, I'm sure. Yeah, thumbs up, right? Yeah, okay. This is what God did. Put up with them for 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness. He destroyed the nations. Love it. Set, was it seven nations, I think it says? Or five, something like that. He destroyed the nations who inhabited the promised land. Gave the promised land to Israel. He gave them judges to govern the nation, which is a fantastic book. If you want to read a good book of ups and downs, good judges had bad kids. Bad judges had good kids. And, I mean, it, it, it takes everything and flips it upside down. And everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. What does that sound like? That's the book of Judges. Doesn't that sound like today? Yeah, us. Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. You can't judge me. Only God can. Well, I don't think you're going to really want that to happen. So you probably should stop doing whatever the heck you want to do. It's not going to be fun for you, okay? Read. This is what God did. Gave them judges to govern the nation. Gave them a king to lead the nation because they wanted a king, because they wanted to be like other nations. Until he removed that king for his rebellion. Then he raised up a new king, right? That king's David was named what? David, that was his name, David. He would lead them as he followed God faithfully, though very imperfectly, if you know the story. In all of this, what Paul is doing is he's reminding his Jewish listeners of what God had done throughout human history. God has always been about the salvation and establishment. Those are two key words. He's always been about the salvation and the establishment of his kingdom in this war zone we call earth. So he's going to save people, and he's going to use those people to establish his kingdom in this war zone that we call earth. If you want a quick summary of that, because we don't have time, God's kingdom here on earth, it could be described this way. It is God's sovereign presence among his redeemed people in the midst of enemy-occupied territory. Say it again. This is God's sovereign presence among his redeemed people amidst enemy-occupied territory. That doesn't sound like a comfortable social club, does it? No. Vast numbers of churches this morning where people are meeting, where they will celebrate National Pet Day and pray over pets. 
Vast numbers of churches will meet this morning that have chosen one political candidate over the other, and that's what their pulpits will be used for, is to push a political agenda. We know this is true, right? Vast numbers of churches will meet this morning and choose to push a grand topical message that makes you feel good about yourself and helps you know how you can achieve the American dream because that was God's intentions for you. Because we have largely rejected the gospel. And I don't want that for us. I don't believe that there's many, if any of you sitting in this room, that are guilty of that. So maybe it's more of a warning, right? Or maybe you are in that place where you're guilty of that, and maybe it's time to repent of that. So I want you to hear me well. I'm not trying to lay down a bunch of guilt on all of us. Just be careful. The times we live in, things are going right now. I watched a half a day of news the other day. It was the first time I watched a half a day of news in about six months. I have lots that I can say. I'm not going to say anymore. God's sovereign presence among his redeemed people amidst enemy-occupied territory. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of the establishment of God's kingdom. And this story of redemption and establishment all throughout Israel's history, it's really the story of God's work in human history. All of that history was meant to point to one central event. It's like it just continues like a freight train moving forward and up. It's escalating. All the tension of the story from Genesis until the Gospels, it just continues to escalate like crazy. You get to the cross. You get to Jesus. That's the apex of the story. It's that moment in the movie where it's like, if it doesn't happen, it ain't going to happen now. Like something miraculous has got to happen. It's going to be huge. It's going to be... Oh, it happened, right? Or that, that moment in the football game where you're down to the last couple of seconds and the Broncos finally lose because KC wins. I know, it's heresy, right? <laughs> it's, it's that feeling. That's what's taking place in the story. And Paul is sharing the gospel in narrative form. We have a, a tendency to make the gospel theological, and it is. Don't hear me wrong. It is. Oftentimes, we lose the power of the narrative. And Jesus taught in stories and did it very, very well. There's many churches today, too, that just want to sit up front and just share stories. Kumbaya. They've totally lost the power of the gospel as well. And this is where Paul heads next, the power of Jesus. He wants to talk about what God has done through Christ. Verses 23 and 20 through 39. You think about this, human history is absolutely meaningless. Without the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that in very concrete terms because I believe that human history is only a mere social experience that I, I want nothing to do with. That's zero eternal impact. If it doesn't point to Jesus, just a social experiment, right? If it ain't pointing to Jesus, then human history is stupid. If it doesn't point to Jesus, crucified, risen, returning. All of history coming up to Jesus looked forward to him. We now all look back to that moment as we look forward at the same time to his return. (coughs) Paul, what he does in verses 23 through 39 is he continues from his previous monologue regarding David as the king whom God had chosen. 
He says in verse 23 that from this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. I love Ben Shapiro. Anybody else like Ben Shapiro? Uh, Ben Shapiro has an absolute fascinating brain. I wish that my brain could compute the levels of information that comes out that dude's mouth. You ever, anybody ever listening? If you haven't, I like, wholly recommend. Like, if you like intellectual and just the dude is freaky smart. But I listened to him the other day talking about what he believes about Jesus. He's Jewish. Okay? He said, Jesus is dead. That was his, that's what he said. I believe Jesus is dead. He was nothing, he goes, he wasn't even a good prophet. But he's learned, Ben Shapiro has learned, that he can't say he's a good prophet because if he does, the argument is, well, if he was a good prophet, everything he said about himself must be true, therefore he's the Savior. Again, I love Ben Shapiro. I pray for his salvation every day. I hope that he would see the truth, right? This is where Paul goes. This man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior through that man's offspring. <clears throat> a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The promise that Paul is referring to is the promise that God had made to David to, listen, to establish his throne where? In the midst of his enemies forever. Like It would be an eternal throne. And for a season, it would be in the midst of his enemies until those enemies are absolutely vanquished. You look at Psalm 110. You look at 2 Samuel 7. You'll find that promise. And in light of that historical promise, uh, he even points, Paul even points to John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist, kind of a freaky dude who eats locusts and, and honey and wears camel hair coats or something. Camel hair coats to me sound like they'd be very, very uncomfortable. Kind of like wearing wool against your skin. But this is John the Baptist, okay? Really, he was a fairly highly respected prophet among the Jews of that time period. Um, until the, the king beheaded him. On behalf of the woman he was sleeping with. Like That's, that's the story. Bible is full of crazy stuff. Even he, even John the Baptist, Paul says, recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. And in fulfillment of that promise, the Jews in Jerusalem had conned the Roman rulers into murdering Jesus on the cross of Calvary, even though they couldn't find him guilty of anything. Paul is sure to put that in there. Really, the Spirit of God makes sure that this unblemished, innocent Jesus crucified death couldn't defeat jesus we know this right god raised him from the dead on the third day this is a fact that could be confirmed by everyone he appeared to in the weeks following his resurrection especially those he walked with and if you look at first corinthians 15 you'll see that it was more than 500 people many of whom were still alive at the time that the apostle paul wrote first corinthians like it's it's a fascinating argument right if they had news channels back then, they would have had the talking heads on there going, hey, you know, I just interviewed Paul the other day. I also interviewed Peter. It's crazy. He had like 500 people outside talking about how they saw Jesus. How can this be? That's how Fox News and CNN would be telling the story on repeat. Breaking news. The tomb is empty. Do you believe it? Well, 50% say they do and 50% say they don't. The Jews say it never happened. Where are you at? That's what would be going on, right? It is this very message Paul says. This very message that is the gospel. Literally, the word gospel means good news. I always say that uh, you can't have good news without bad news. And the bad news of our sin that makes all of this good news. 
And it's this message, this good news that Paul says, this should encourage everyone in that Jewish synagogue, right? Again, he was offered the opportunity to encourage, but he's going to share the gospel to encourage them. He's using that word encourage as a way to present the gospel, right? Talking to a guy late last night and some rough points in his marriage, been rough for quite a while. And I won't go into all the details, um, but there are points in the, and he's not a believer, but leans that way. And just many times in that conversation, be able to say, what do you, like, what do you think God would really want of you in this situation as you sleep with this 24-year-old girl, but you're married to a, your wife of 15 years and your two kids are watching? What, what do you, what do you think God would ask of you? And he goes, well, you know, I know that the relationship has fallen down to the point to where this one's just about sex. There's nothing else there. This relationship over here that I'm kind of pushing away, that's 15 years. There's no spark there. What if you romanced her a little bit? You ever looked at God as the one who wants to romance you? Like, what the are you talking about? I'm like, let's talk about that for a minute. The point is, Paul is using an inroad for the gospel. And hey, you want to be encouraged? Let me show you how you can be encouraged. Let's think about your history. Let's think about Jesus. This should encourage you. And it should encourage everyone. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is literally the fulfillment of ancient historical promises. That's what he says in verses 32 through 35. He lists out a bunch of historical promises that they would have been very familiar with. Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 55. He walks right through those and quotes them with ease. That should encourage them. See, the problem for the Jewish people at this point is that they had historically read those promises as referring to David, who was obviously dead in the grave at this point, right? This is something that Paul goes to great lengths to explain as he contrasts David's death with Christ's resurrection. Basically, the point here in verses 36 and 37 is that David is dead, therefore he's not your savior, Lord Jesus left the tomb empty, therefore he is the Savior we've all been looking for, right? And as awesome and as great as all this is, you can't miss what I would call Paul's final knockdown punch here um, in this portion. I think it's like a slug from a 357. That's the way I think it, it reads when you, when you think about it. <laughs> Paul brings this whole message home. He says in verses 30 and 39, look at it with me. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Circle that word, freed. It's the first time the Apostle Paul actually uses the Greek word for justified. Freed. I really believe it should say justified there. I just think better. By him, everyone who believes is justified from, what's the next word? Anybody got it? Let me read it again. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from what? Everything. You know what the word everything means in the Greek? Do you hate that when I do that? <laughs> but it makes you remember it, doesn't it? Like, Okay, just a sidebar, we're at 43 minutes. I got one more good point to go. I think it's a good point. So we're going to go long, and this is what it is. But we got to pause for a minute. 
Don't we, when we think of the gospel, don't we often forget this everything aspect of the gospel? Freed from everything. Yeah, probably not that sin, though. I mean, that's, well, that one's pretty bad. Probably not that sin either because I keep struggling with it, so I'm not really freed from that, right? That's, that's the way we approach the gospel. I think we as believers need to hang on to this everything. You want to know what probably weakens your witness, your ability to pull this loaded weapon out your pocket and start sharing the gospel with people? It is you and I's ability to castrate the gospel into thinking that it doesn't actually save us from everything. Justifies us from everything. Saves me from everything, he goes on to say. He says it twice. By him, everyone who believes is freed from what? Everything. From which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the knockdown punch in that synagogue. This is where he brings it all to a point and goes, yo, I'm here to pick a fight. I hope that encourages you. <laughs> I think Paul would be a great boxer or a great lawyer. All of God's activity throughout human history finds its significance in the resurrection of Jesus because in the resurrection of our crucified Savior, we have the proof of the fulfillment of the promise of complete justification from everything by the presence and the power and the penalty of our sins, completely removed, and not just removed, but covered and infused with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead, Satan's sin and death were completely vanquished. Yes, and the presence and the power and the penalty of our sins completely removed from us, placed upon Jesus. And then God the Father, by the Spirit of God, took Jesus' perfection, his perfect righteousness, and he not only laid it over us like brand new clothing to cover our nakedness and our shame, but he also infused us with it. It became part of who we are. You're no longer sinners. You're now saints in front of God. Everything. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Jewish in that synagogue that day and going, yo, I thought you were going to encourage me and totally missing the point. Like, I feel encouraged just thinking about this, right? I told you I'm ready to run through walls. Could be the lack of sleep and too many energy drinks and too much testosterone, but no, I think it's the gospel, Imagine hearing that all your human ancestry, all that history pointed to this one act in human history whereby you could receive the free gift of complete sinlessness, perfection, innocence before God. That all the work you'd been doing to try to make yourself better wasn't necessarily bad, but it sure as heck wasn't going to change anything in terms of your right standing with God. To hear that, to hear that the moral codes that you've been following could not save you from the wrath of God, but that at the same time, God himself had provided a way for you. The one whom you made as your enemy provided the pathway so that you could be made right with him. You could be forgiven, cleansed from your sinful rebellion against him. And that's fascinating. The final piece of Paul's message, verses 38 and 39 and, and, and on, I think all the way down from, from like 40 to 50. If 
basically lays out the only decision that matters, right? He does at the very end. At 3839, um, in this last piece that we were looking at regarding what God has done through Christ Jesus, um, it's really meant to be like an atom bomb, I think. He's just kind of dropping that in the midst of that synagogue. And in that moment, once that bomb drops, everybody is forced to decide which side they're enlisted in, right? Which uniforms they're going to be wearing. It's the only decision that matters because it's the decision that dictates your eternal destiny. In verses 40 through 41, Paul literally issues a warning to his audience. He's urging them not to turn a deaf ear to the message of the gospel because otherwise they're going to certainly perish. And in response to that warning, we should all take note. Verses 42 to 43. Some of the people, along with some of the Jews, actually beg Paul and Barnabas to come back the following week, right? And Paul and Barnabas encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord. That's the way the narrative goes. And on the following Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas actually return to the synagogue. And Luke tells us in verse 44 that almost the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They didn't necessarily gather to hear Paul or Barnabas because they were great people. They gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And the turnout was so stinking huge the Jews were overwhelmed, and they were like, oh, praise Jesus, thank God, people are going to get saved today. Wasn't that their response? No, that wasn't their response. The text tells us, Luke tells us, they became jealous. Jealousy is a killer, isn't it? Jealousy is a massive killer. It can severely diminish the power of the gospel in us, and it can lead to some really uh, bad eternal consequences. They became jealous. They began to oppose the Apostle Paul. They openly contradicted what he was saying. They stirred up some popular, outspoken women. I, I'm sorry. I just see this like Oprah Winfrey and her group of ladies on there on that little talk show. I don't know how else you see it, you know? I, I listen to some of those ladies sometimes. I'm like, you have no clue. Not just because I'm a man, but at the end of the day, you seriously have no clue. In every show, you contradict yourself, and you make sure that we know you absolutely hate God. That's the group of women I see taking place in this text. They stir up popular outspoken women and some city officials to persecute and drive out Paul and Barnabas, 45 and 50. And in all of this, it's clear the Jewish people made their decision to oppose the kingdom of God by rejecting the gospel, persecuting his messengers, just as their forefathers did all throughout Israel's history. The same thing happening over and over again. They literally thrusted aside the word of God. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The Apostle Paul, to his credit, doesn't let their rejection or their opposition or their persecution intimidate him. Instead, he turns his attention to the Gentiles. And this is absolutely fantastic, right? Verse 46 and 47, he states that even though it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to the Jews, he could now turn his attention to the Gentiles because the Lord had called the apostles to be a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Long story short, the Jews chose to enlist in the enemy's army Therefore, the Gentiles now have the opportunity to enlist in God's army, to bring that message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, I think about this. I want you to think about it with me. Imagine what it would have been like to have been in that synagogue that very day, right? You think about it. Apostle Paul's laying out this only decision that really matters. Think about what it would have been like to be a Gentile, the outsider, the irreligious, basically. And you're looking at the, the traditionally religious within your country, and they're sitting there in the pews, and Paul's laying this out. Gentiles are watching. And as they lay it out, they see the response of the Jewish people. And their response is to absolute rejection of God, right? 
And then they hear that God is actually extending this opportunity for you to become part of the kingdom, to join the army. What do you think it'd been like to see so many religious people turning up their noses at the message of the gospel to then realize that that same invitation is now being extended to you? What would you do? Well, Luke tells us what the Gentiles do, right? Look at verses 40 and 49. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, what did they do? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, hey, y'all should know I'm a Calvinist, right? All day long. I don't care if you are or not. One day, if you're saved, you're going to be in heaven. That's all that matters, right? But I love that phrase because it's really hard to argue the original Greek right there. As well, who did the appointing? Well, you know, when they bowed their knees, God appointed. No, you'd have to be an idiot to think that because they bowed their knees, God did the appointing. That means that they're God now. They, they dictate what God chooses to do, right? I mean, does anybody dictate to you who you get to go choose when you go into the election box? Well, I guess it depends on which depends on which depends on which news outlet you listen to, right? No, that's not true either. Forget I said anything about that. Okay, I don't I don't want to get crucified for that one too. There is a cross up there, and nobody's crucified me yet, so I'm no, nowhere close to Jesus. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. You know what this means is that when you and I run through walls and walk into those crazy, dirty, dangerous, scary places to share the gospel. You and I don't have to trust in our own, you know, uh, great ability, books read, five-point systems of sharing the gospel. You don't have to trust in that. You just trust that, hey, you know what? There's people in this audience that God has appointed to eternal life. And my job is just to find ways to share the message and let him do his job. Yeah, right? That's fun. The pressure's not on me. I just need to stay alive while I'm doing it. Like, I don't want to get my throat cut or, you know... Stories I should tell you, but I can't tell you here because we're out of time, number one. And I can't tell those stories publicly anyway, so I'm going to keep moving on. The quote-unquote insiders, okay? The insiders here, they rejected their Messiah. They enlisted in the enemy's army. The quote-unquote outsiders begin following Jesus as they enlisted in God's army. What begins as a little spark way back in Cornelius' house a few chapters ago has now spread into an absolute, all-out, out-of-control wildfire as the breath. By the way, Holy Spirit, ruah, breath, as the breath of the Holy Spirit blows this thing into flames. He enables the Apostle Paul to wield the greatest weapon we have at our fingertips, otherwise known as the message of the gospel. And he does this amidst an all-out war for the souls of the lost. That's the battle, I think. And the result of Paul's spirit-enabled wielding of this great weapon of the gospel is that many people respond rightly. The only decision that matters and that become part of the kingdom of God, right? And the final piece of the text, the final piece of the text here, and they get booted out, right? And it says that when they leave, they shake off the dust off their feet at them. Yeah, I guess I'd like to tell stories, but I can't. Point of time. That's shaking off the dust off your feet at people is kind of an interesting way of doing things, but it does say they were filled with absolute joy in the Holy Spirit as they left. And uh, I think that's where I want to be. I don't know where you're at as you listen to this, this whole text. My hope, though, is that as we wrap things up and as you get ready to leave here, my hope is that you would be reminded of 
the greatest weapon available to you. It's not politics, not education. It's not the really cool AR-12 gauge shotgun I got yesterday, although it's pretty cool. Not the greatest weapon, right? Our greatest weapons are not anything to have to do with the kingdom of this world. Our greatest weapon is the message of the gospel. And it must first encourage you, and then you can use it to encourage others. And trust that the Spirit of God will do work in and through you. I don't know what circles God's calling you in. I don't know what circles you run in. I don't know what circles maybe you should be running in. I pray that God would ignite a fire inside of us so that more would come to know him based around that central truth that he went to the cross and he left the tomb empty and he left us with a promise that he's coming back to set everything right. He's going to annihilate our enemies and we're going to head to heaven forever. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's an enlistment card into an army and your greatest weapon is the gospel. And you get to go forward with that. And you get to experience God doing not only miraculous things in you, but miraculous things through you in the lives of others. And I really do think that for us, it hinges on that word, everything. I hope maybe as we close, maybe you spend some time thinking about the ways in which you have diminished the power of the gospel, in which you've traded the gospel for something else that you thought was powerful. It's actually just like little weak squirt guns, you know? I would never lay my new AR-style 12-gauge shotgun down and pick up my kid's squirt gun and go, hey, let's go. That's stupid, right? I don't pick up the gospel. I'll continue moving ahead with that. Everything else can go by the wayside. I'm trusting God in the process, amen? Hey, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you come in these closing moments, Lord, and, and uh, man, stir within us. Um, stir within us places where we've become complacent, where we've uh, made excuses, we've diminished the power of the gospel somehow, God, reawaken within us a love, a ferocious love, not just for the gospel as a message, but for the point of the gospel who is Jesus. Help us to love Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. In so doing, Fill us with joy. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.